I absolutely love being a parent. Anyone else? Anyone else online? You love being a parent? It, I think for me, it is probably the greatest thing in my life. Um, but if we're honest, can we be honest in church? Is that right? Yeah. Parenting is brutal. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> um, like I was going to tell a little story. I might get to it. But I don't have to go far. Uh, even last night, Rachel and I were up till 2 a.m. with one of our beautiful offspring. And um, it's just, it's just it's, it can be brutal. I mean, we're like, well, in one moment, we're celebrating Oakley turning four, which is just, he is so pumped on being four. And I love the level of emotion that my four-year-old brings to a celebration. Uh, and, then, and then in the next breath, trying to fathom why your, your almost 10-year-old can't fall asleep at 2 a.m. in the morning when all you want to do is get some sleep. It's brutal. It's brutal. And, um, you know, the passage we're about to read this morning, I think, encapsulates one of the moments that, that we resonate with as a parent that is, that is brutal. It's the story of Jairus in Mark 5, verses 21 to 43, and I say part two because we've already kind of covered this passage. We covered it last time we were together, and if you missed it, you can grab it. It is online. It's on YouTube. Get on there and re-listen. Um, we talked about the authority that Jesus has over sin and over death, um, and the amazing story that is told inside of this story. But Mark chapter 5, verse 21 it says, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal with, uh, from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything that she had to pay for them. But she had gotten worse, not better. She had heard about Jesus, and so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. I, just, I, I, just, I want to pause there for one moment. She had heard about Jesus. You know, you imagine everything that's going on in the life of Jesus at this point in time and the, the miracles that are occurring, the, the things that are happening. It's not, it's not like we don't need to go far back to, to, to know of the, the man that was freed from that legion of, of demons over his life. And Jesus says, and he's like, I want to go with you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not what I, I, what I need you to do is I need you to go and tell people about what I've done in your life. I need you to get your testimony and I need you to take it and I need you to tell people because there are so many people in our world who need to hear about Jesus. This woman heard about Jesus. She hadn't met Jesus. It's not recorded that we know about that she had prior knowledge of meeting him, no prior encounter with him. What she had was, a, was she heard what was going on about what Jesus could do in people's lives. And you know, two weeks ago, we showed Testimony Sunday. Why? Because we believe in people hearing about Jesus. 
We believe in people hearing about what Jesus is actually doing, not what he did, but what he's doing in your life. And maybe you weren't someone that got to sit and talk and be on a video, but I'm telling you, you better know what Jesus is doing in your life. Don't let your testimony be the testimony of 20 years ago. Let your testimony be the testimony of today. What is God doing today? What is Jesus doing today that is real enough in your life that you can tell somebody so that someone else can hear about Jesus? Because there's all sorts of people like this woman who are spending every single thing they have, every amount of time, every amount of energy, every amount of finance, every moment of their life just trying to find peace just trying to find joy, just trying to find a skerrick of hope in this world. They are trying to navigate this world, and I'm telling you what they need is they need to hear about Jesus, and they need you to tell them. Evangelism is not the job of those employed by the church only. Telling people about Jesus is the product of a life that is fueled by the testimony of his spirit at work in you. And this is not to condemn or or to make you feel like, well, I don't know what God's doing in me, so I don't know if I have a testimony. Can I tell you, that moment in your life is an invitation. That moment in your life is simply an invitation to seek and to say, God, what are you doing? What is next? How do I move forward in relationship with you? I love that our whole youth ministry focused an entire weekend on how do we take your relationship with Jesus to a next level? Can I tell you a next level isn't about going up, it's about going deeper. It's about dealing with a deeper level of insecurity in your life or a deeper level of, 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 of where an area in your life that you are bound up or where there's no joy or there's no hope. Jesus wants to go deeper. He wants to heal you at a greater level so that you have a greater testimony to tell people about. I'm telling you, we have a whole world that needs to hear about Jesus. This woman heard about Jesus and the outcome is life-changing. Verse 28, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. I wonder what people think about when we do talk about Jesus. When we talk about church, when we talk about Jesus, what is what they're hearing formulating as a thought in their minds. Is it, if I could just get some of that? Or is it something else? I'm I'm not gonna stand up here today and say the church has a squeaky clean clean record. I'm not gonna stand up here today and, and, and say we haven't as an organizational body globally done some things that have been so detrimental to people's lives and the reputation of the house of God. But I'll also stand here and say the only people that can change that are you and I. The only people that can change the reputation of the church and the things that the world thinks about when we talk about Jesus is you and I. The way we live, the way we talk about Jesus, the way that our relationship with him is real in our lives enough that we can say, you know what, I'll 100% acknowledge the mistakes that the church have made, that people have made under the banner of the church, under the name of Jesus, but can I tell you that I have met Jesus? 
You know, I saw a statistic the other day that said that one in four Australians are interested in knowing about Jesus, but they might not do that by setting foot in the church. Because we've got to acknowledge that the church, we've got, we got some ways to go. Rebuilding trust. But you might be out there. You might be the one they're willing to listen to about the real life-giving person of Jesus Christ. We just, at some point, have to get confident enough in ourselves that, you know what, I, I actually just, I might have the answer to that person's need. I really might. His name's Jesus and he's real. <laughs> if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. That's what she thought when she, the things that she heard caused her to think, if I could just, if I can just touch his robe. And so she reached, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of her terrible condition. You know, I remember walking into church and I cannot tell you what I experienced when I walked into church, but I knew I experienced something that was going to change my life forever. I couldn't explain it, but it hit something inside of me. I knew. I knew. She knew she was healed. She just knew. She knew something inside had, had shifted, something inside had changed. When I walked into the house of God, I experienced something, and I knew something inside had shifted. Sun inside of me had changed. I couldn't explain it. I wouldn't have been able to articulate it. I wouldn't even have known to say it was the Holy Spirit. I, I knew something happened, though. And she knew she'd been healed. So Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. I love that. Jesus is so intent on engaging with the person who has sought him out. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived. This is all happening. This is all happening after Jairus has come to him, pleading because his daughter is dying. And it says Jesus went with him, and then, and then it's like, boom, there is this whole story, and we talked a little bit about, was this, did this actually happen last week? But, you know, irrespective of that part of the conversation, what we have here is a very clear indication that between the moment that Jairus reached out to Jesus... And the moment in which Jesus reached into Jairus' world to impart a miracle, there was, there was quite a period of time. This is so much so that while he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. And then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing, and he went inside and he asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him. 
but he made them all leave and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up, walked around, and they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. You know, as a parent, I relate to Jairus. There are so many times in our lives as parents where the, the helplessness that we feel is brutal, right? I, like, like it starts pretty young too. I mean, many of you have children that are older than me, but you know, whether it's, whether it's situations to do with um, their, their, their physical development, you know, you can't, you can't like force your child to walk Right, It starts early where it's like, I feel helpless in this scenario. But I feel like as they get older, the gap between helplessness and, and brutality on the parent grows. And now, now you're wading through friendship stuff. That, that you're, wading through, you're wading through the worry of what they're exposed to when they go to school. You're worried about, you're worried about like faith stuff. Like, how's their journey with Jesus? How, like... like and, 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 and it's brutal on a parent because you can't do anything in those spaces sometimes. You're not at school with your teenager in the playground. You're not around them all the time when they're on their phone, trusting that they're not accessing things that you know are going to be detrimental to their life moving forward, or they're not engaged in a situation where people are saying things that are completely affecting their sense of self-worth. It's brutal as a parent, navigating relationship stuff, and the older they get, the less you get to be in control. You get to protect. We call it control, but it's, you know, um, the more helpless you are. And for many of you who, who, who seat in the, in the northern section of our auditorium, I'm, my, I'm imagining it doesn't get any easier even when your children are adults. Am I right? Senior saints in the upper section. Amen. Health is one of those spaces. When you're helpless, actually, to, when, when your child has a sickness, when your child has a disease, when your child is suffering from something physically and you, see, you feel helpless and you are there with your child in pain and, and as a parent you ache for that. You can't do anything about that so many of the times. And this is Jairus. Jairus is in a situation where his daughter is dying and he can't fix it. For all the money, for all the prestige that he has as the synagogue leader, for all the status he has in society, for all that he has built up and presented himself as in the community that he is in, this breaks him. Because he cannot for all the money, status, acclaim, popularity, he cannot heal his daughter. He's desperate. He's scared. I put myself in his shoes. He is, he is petrified of what could happen. And he feels utterly helpless. And all the posturing, the arrogance, the facade is shattered as he throws himself, pleading at the feet of Jesus. 
You know, my prayer for every person is that it wouldn't take a situation like this for you to humble yourself before Jesus. Let's not be a people that require us to have to get to a point like this before we are willing to acknowledge that we need him in our lives. Let's not allow a situation so significant in our lives that it truly breaks us before we, we actively throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus because we have come into an awareness that without him, we can do nothing. Right? Like we're separate from him. We are, we are completely separate from life itself. Like, like It took Jairus to this point for there to be humility in him enough to throw himself at the feet of Jesus. Because we know up until that point, Jairus' mindset around Jesus was, ah, he's a teacher. We know because the people come from his house and say, don't worry, the teacher anymore. It's interesting because I think there is a direct correlation between how we see Jesus and how much humility we're willing to allow in our lives before him. You see, because if he's king and lord and all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, If we really believe that he's all of that, there is a holy fear and a reverence that grows in us that puts us at his feet on our knees all the time simply because of who he is in our life, not just because of what is going on in our life. Let us be mature enough, church, to move from needing Jesus because of what is going on in our life to needing Jesus because of who Jesus is in this life. Because he's not going to change everything in our lives this side of eternity. I will pray with every ounce of faith I have for every opportunity for healing, but I also know that death is a door we all pass through. And so there will be a moment where healing is done in eternity with him. So let us not only go to him for what we need him to do. Let us go to him because we know that we need him. We need him. Jairus... Sorry, Jesus. Jairus isn't waiting for you either, but Jesus isn't waiting for you to show him you can do it on your own. You know, that's a lie from the pit of hell that you need to prove to Jesus that you've got this. (laughs) But we all buy into it. We all buy into this idea that somehow salvation is the beginning of us showing God we can do it. Salvation, Salvation is the moment we realize we can't. We're not supposed to graduate beyond that. Maturity isn't taking more back from God. Maturity is giving more to God. Maturity is realizing I've got this less. I really have this less. Right? Love your enemies. Are you kidding? Lucky to love my friends on a good day. Everyone's got things that frustrate me. Amen? Oh, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I'm like, I have not got this. And we buy into this lie that, that Jesus is waiting for us to have it all together. And he's waiting for us to realize we don't. Don't, want, don't wait for a crisis to desire dependence. But you know, what we, what we see in this passage is a, is a situation where I want to ask you a question. What do you do when you do come to Jesus and you do need a miracle? You do need a breakthrough. 
but it is taking longer than you want. And the whole while you're waiting, someone else gets exactly what you're seeking Jesus for. (laughs) How do we wait when someone else gets what you're praying for? Have you faced this in your walk with Christ yet? (laughs) How did you wait? I didn't wait well. See, Jairus goes to Jesus seeking healing. And while he's there, some other woman reaches out of the crowd, grabs Jesus' attention, power, and healing. And Jairus ends up waiting. What are you doing, Jesus? And then his people come from his house and they're like, it's too late. How do you wait when someone else gets what you're praying for and your situation gets worse, not better? Can we talk about real life for a little while? How do you wait? How do you deal with that? How do you process that? How are you with Jesus? I imagine Jairus wasn't real happy with Jesus. I imagine Jairus is in a situation where he's like, hey, are we, are we, is this happening? Are we doing this? Like, are you coming with me or are you waiting here? Jesus, are you with me? I don't know if that's a question you've asked in the middle of the wait. Are you with me, Jesus? And we start, we start seeking him, waiting to feel him because our feelings will give us a confidence that he really is with us. And we start to live our relationship with Jesus based on what we think and feel rather than what is in our spirit. So that's a dangerous journey. You know, we get some tips in this passage as to how to wait. And you know, I know that I can preach sometimes and you're not sure what to take notes on because you're not sure when I'm going to stop long enough for you to actually write something down. But I'm going to give you a couple of points that you can write down right now, okay? This, I know, I know, it's unique, I know, it's good, babe, I got this. Um, This is some tips on how you wait well. So you can just put the little heading, how should I wait when someone else gets what I want? Number one, first point, verse 36, Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. How do we wait well? Well, we realize that in the wait, there's a war. 2 Peter says, don't, like, be sober-minded, be aware. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing who he can devour. In the wait, there's a war. There's a war between your worry and your faith. There's a war between your fear of what if and your faith of what if. Because both will project And both will dictate the path you take while you wait. If you allow fear to dictate the path that you take, you will walk out of step with the pace of Jesus. Here's an interesting thing about fear and faith. You know, people say that... Actually, I I won't say that. Faith and fear are very similar in that they both 
will get us questioning what if. But the thing with fear and faith is that their source is different. You see, faith is oriented in our spirit, okay? And we know that, that that's not where fear is. Fear is a spirit. 2 Timothy tells us that in verse 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, For I have not given to you a spirit of fear. Fear is a spirit-induced emotional response in our lives. Like we can, we can do a whole seminar on, on the, the chemical, the neurochemicals that are released. I mean, I love that stuff, right? Chat to me about it later. We can talk all day about the, the fight or flight mechanism in you. But when you are a born again believer, I am telling you the enemy will send his spirit of fear to start trying to get you to think of things that will initiate that emotional experience of fear in your life. It's a spirit before it's a feeling. And so fear is a spirit that goes to work on our mind. Faith is from our spirit that gets fed by the word of God. And so if you realize that in the weight you're in a war, then you need to be aware that the war will come against your mind, but you win by fueling your faith. So winning the war looks like two different things. Winning the war, number one, looks like protecting your mind. But often what happens is we spend all of our time shutting out all like, oh, the battlefield of the mind. Yes, Joyce, my great book, by the way. But, but we focus on, ah, oh, I've got to get this out. That we forget that, uh, that winning the war is two-sided. We fight the fear, but we feel the faith. If we don't do both, we get exhausted. We get exhausted fighting if we don't feel the faith. And so, so how do we feel faith? Well, faith comes, as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, that is the good news about Christ. In other words, faith comes by reading the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing testimony. How do we overcome the world? We overcome by, by the blood and the Word of His testimony. Right? We are, testimony and the Word of God will fuel your faith at the same time that we fight off the fear. And if we are to wait well, we must engage in both of those. We must engage in fueling our faith. We must engage with fighting fear. When the what if comes in, what if that happens to my son? What if that happens to my daughter? What if that happens in my life? What if that happens in our business? What if that happens in our marriage? They are all fear-fueled what ifs. In here, you have all faith-feeding what ifs. What if God's promises are yes and amen? What if God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I could ask, dream, or imagine? What if God really has set me free? What, like, like, notice the difference there, both what if, but one is attacking my mind, the other is fueling my faith. And I think sometimes we get complacent with this thing. We forget how powerful it is to fuel the inner man, food for our soul. I'm telling you, if you are starting to slip into a place where fear is getting a bit stronger and you are starting to be like, oh man, I'm starting to go, um, you can get this into your life every day, every moment, as much as you can, feeding, gorging your spirit on the Word of God. Second thing. Second point, first point, 
Be aware you're in a war. Second point, be aware things might get worse. If we're aware things might get worse, if they do, we won't be blindsided. Because I will tell you the enemy loves nothing more than you going after something, believing for an outcome, it getting worse, and you going, God doesn't work. He will use a progression of worse in that scenario to try to lie to you about God being with you and God being able in you. Be aware, it might get worse. And if it does get worse, it doesn't mean God's not in control. Worse is not evidence of God's absence. Where was Jesus when the situation got worse for Jairus? He was still right next to Jairus. He hadn't gone anywhere. Third point. I stole this right from the uh, straight-up motivational quotes of Instagram. Don't give up on Jesus. I'm just going to put that in there because you guys need it. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. Because you want to know what the world will tell you? The world will tell you, it's no use, stop bothering the teacher. Give up on that Jesus thing, it doesn't work. Give up on church, it's full of broken people that break people. Don't give up on Jesus. (laughs) Don't give up on Jesus. I would plead with you not to give up on the church, but please don't give up on Jesus. And don't stop being a part of the church if you're struggling with the church. Maybe I should say that down the camera. Don't abandon the community of believers if you're struggling with the church. Because we need each other to walk ourselves through difficult seasons. The last thing that I want to ask you is who? So how do you wait well? And who do you wait with? Who do you bring closest in the most difficult times in your life? Can you make a list? It's one thing to be a welcoming church. It's another thing to be a church that is committed to building deep enough relationships with each other, that we're there for each other in the most difficult seasons. That is an intentional thing, church. Building friendships, building relationships, it takes effort. It takes intention. It takes a desire to make this a deeper, meaningful community space for you. I don't want to just be a welcoming church. I want to be a church where people make friends. Friends that are close enough to walk through the difficult seasons of life. When you're in your your wait between miracles, between the dream and the reality, between the hope and the manifestation, when you're struggling to fight off the fear and you're struggling to fuel your faith, who is close enough for you to listen to? Who is close enough in your life to listen to? Because you know, when we look at scripture, there's a really interesting interplay between what Jesus, who's right next to Jairus, is saying to him. Jairus, 
Don't be afraid. Jairus, just believe. Jairus, don't be afraid. Jairus, just believe. And you want to know what's going on all around Jairus? Hey, Jairus, it's too late. Jairus, don't bother the teacher. Jairus, your daughter's dead. The situation is beyond recovery. Jairus. And you want to know what? Nothing's changed in the culture and the day that we live in where Jesus is trying to whisper something to you. And the world all around us is yelling something back that's different. The crowd will always be more loud and more emotional. But more often than not, they are saying something different to Jesus. And we have to make sure that we have people close enough to us that are going to help us wait well. They're going to help us to fight off our fears. They're going to help us to fuel our faith. Because you know what? The voice of the world, social media, the news in general, just the, just the fact that we live in the information age and the permeation of information that we swim through on a day-to-day basis with the smartphones in our pockets and the screens all around us. We are constantly swimming through a sea of the crowd that is yelling to us, don't bother the teacher. Don't bother with faith. Don't bother with Jesus. Don't bother with the Word of God. Don't believe what Jesus says. Just believe something else. Just believe whatever you want to believe. Just go with whatever you feel. Just go with, no, 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 I'm telling you, we are swimming in a world of that that is being yelled at us day in and day out. And it's interesting if you look at what Jesus' response to that is. Shuts it out. Shuts it out. He creates a space where that voice is not able to come in. And just practically, church, You need to create a space in your life that is separated for a period of time. Start with two minutes if you need to. Two minutes where you create a space in your world where all of the voice, all of the permeation of information is shut out of the room. And you are there with Jesus maybe one or two other people. He takes his closest disciples. He takes his closest disciples. His closest. Who are your closest? Who are you able to text and say, hey, can you meet me at 6 a.m. and pray with me without our phones? Hey, can you be praying for me this week? Can you send me a a verse that encourages me this week? I just, I need it. Who can you send that sort of a thing to? Who can you call up and say, hey, I, I really, I need a coffee. Can we go somewhere? I don't wanna muddy the waters by sounding like I'm pitching something. But we are trying to help foster community by creating these things called table spaces. They are trying to be spaces where you can actually develop these deeper relationships.
where you can actually have a space where all of the rest of the voice can be shut out and people can encourage you and pray with you. And you can go on a journey of developing friendship where you can get incrementally more vulnerable. Who knows, that's a, that's a process once you're over like 25, right? So my encouragement to you is don't, don't disregard those as just some other part of the church. Seriously consider engaging in a space where you can build relationship, where you can walk the journey of your relationship with Jesus, with other people who are going to feed your faith and help you fight off fear. Lastly, I want, I want to help you realize that every need for a miracle, every need for a breakthrough. This is what happens when I don't get to preach for a few weeks. I just have stuff stirred up. Every need you have for a miracle, every need you have for provision, for breakthrough, whatever it is, can I tell you that it's really an invitation? Every gap is an open door. Every gap in your life is an open door. It's an open door an invitation to know Jesus differently. I don't want to offend you this morning, but Jesus is more concerned with the level of relationship you have with him than on the specific need that you want him to fulfill. Because at the end of the day, eternity is about our relationship with him. We will spend eternity with him with no need. So it can't be about need. So put it, live from an eternal perspective for a second. Our, our interaction with Jesus, it can't be about need and fulfillment of need. It should be about knowledge of Him. It should be about deeper relationship with Him, being more aware of Him. I mean, in eternity, we're going to spend thousands of years going around and getting a revelation of every facet of the goodness and amazingness and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's never going to get old learning and understanding new elements of His goodness. It's going to be mind-blowing. Please be aware that He operates in our lives with that eternal perspective all of the time. And He wants to reveal to you a new facet of who He is. It doesn't mean that He won't come through. It doesn't mean that He won't provide or bring breakthrough or facilitate a miracle. But that's not what this life is about. This life is here as a journey for us in deepening our relationship with Him and inviting others into it. The ministry of reconciliation. We as a church say that our mission is people, not stuff. It's not about getting more. I have some great testimonies, amazing testimonies of God coming through. A beautiful house that I will always attribute to God. But in that, there was a lesson and a revelation of an element of the love of God that I hadn't experienced. And when we look at Jairus, even as he gets his miracle, that miracle is just Jesus showing him another facet of who he is. Because if we look at the progression that Jairus goes through in his understanding of Jesus, in this short passage, he begins with, I know Jesus as teacher. Everyone say teacher. And then in the middle of him waiting, 
he learns that Jesus is healer. Everyone say healer. But by the end of journeying with Jesus, he also now knows that Jesus is the resurrector. Everyone say resurrector. If he hadn't walked the journey with Jesus, he would never have learned that he was more than a teacher. He would never have learned that he was also a healer. But most of all, he would never have learned that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, right? That is the essence of salvation that Jesus is demonstrating to Jairus. He's saying, listen, I can do this, but I've come to do this. I've come to resurrect every single thing in the deepest parts of your soul to a place from death to life. And Jesus wants you to know him, not just get from him. He wants a deep awareness, an intimacy, and an authenticity in relationship with him. And I think for too long, we've preached a gospel message that is just underpinned around getting what I want, rather than understanding more of who could give it to me.